All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I like to also let you know that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my partner, Chen Lin, who will be with me later today, uh, he publishes a newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? has had a remarkable track record, and he has some ideas he wants to pass along to you today, so I hope that you'll stick around during the second segment of the day to hear what Chen Lin has to say. Uh, this is the 17th, whoops, I think this is the 31st day of October 2017, whatever, the end, we're getting towards the end of 2017, and we're going to uh, look anxiously, uh, listen anxiously to Michael Oliver has to say with regard to where he thinks we're going to end up here and we're heading to 2018 as well. I uh, do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and we want to thank our sponsors, as always, for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. Uh, I've, I've titled today's show a repeat of the 1970s inflation or worse. John Rubino, Chen Lin, and Michael Oliver, uh, my guest today. You know, price action in markets often seems counterintuitive, and Alistair McLeod recently explained in fundamental terms why stocks often decline even as earnings begin to rise, because stock prices have much more to do with the flows of money than they do with economic fundamentals. At least that's the way it seems these days. Last week, Richard Mayberry opined that an increase in monetary velocity may be starting now, and that could trigger much higher prices as people become, start treating their currency as hot potatoes. They want to get rid of it because they realize it's going to lose value. Well, when that mindset sets in, it causes people to behave differently. Uh, indeed, my own inflation-deflation watch, which measures not just the items measured in the CPI, but also financial assets, is starting to break out to new highs. So the big question on my mind and on the minds of many other people who understand that inflation is, in fact, uh, in fact, monetary expansion, are very concerned with the question as to whether we may now be facing a very serious inflationary event in terms of uh, everyday living costs. We've had massive inflation, of course, in the equity markets and the bond markets, um, and that's served to redistribute wealth from those that create it to those that control it. That's the injustice of our system. But that's the way it is. Now we want to be sure that we're ready as much as possible to adjust to those changes in the economy. About a half past hour, 
half past the hour today. John Rabino will be with me. We'll be just we'll discuss some of those issues, and also John has some things he wants to talk to us about cryptocurrencies, or at least some things I want to ask John about cryptocurrencies. And um, right after our first commercial break, uh, Chen Lin will be with me uh, to talk about. Well, a couple of his favorite stocks. He's done extremely well in the biotech sector. He likes to pick up the babies as they're developing new products. Uh, and he's got one or two he may talk to us about today, as well as one of his favorite energy stocks. Uh, but right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me again. Thanks for being with me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you. Uh, in your weekend report, you talked about some key levels for the S&P 500. You know, the doggone... S&P 500, I don't think it's ever going to go down again, Michael, but you talked about, I think one of the numbers I noticed was um, 2556, I think, on the S&P and 2570 in November. What happens, uh, what, are, what, are your, what are your thoughts about the S&P 500 now? It just Well, we, we measure it via intermediate and, and long-term metrics, and uh, the first long-term number that really looks bad anytime this quarter is 2503.1, to be precise. That's 4% over the three-quarter average. If you touch that, there's a massive floor that comes out on the oscillator that goes back a year. In other words, all yet this year, every time the S&P drops to 5% over its three-quarter average, it stops. You will never touch four. And therefore, when you plot it that way, instead of a price chart, which, of course, is a pattern of ascending lows, on the momentum chart, you have a pattern of flat lows, five of them, in fact. Uh, and if, and if uh, when you plot it on a monthly bar versus the three-quarter average. So if you touch 2503 and change, uh, boom, that breaks. Okay, now, how do you get there? Because we're 2577, so we're several, we're a couple, two and a half percent or so above that number. Well, they have to have something smaller to trigger it, to sort of get it going in that direction. And so we look at things like a 10-week moving average oscillator with its trend structure. And that's the one we focused on there. And that one said, uh, we've got a three-point uptrend line on that momentum chart, and if you break it, you're probably going to stumble. Well, mm-hmm. that could be the stumble that gets you down to that bigger number, okay? So we, it's like little domino falls into the bigger one. Yeah. That number for this week is 2,556. It jumps up about eh, 12 points a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the S&P has to, has to constantly stay in front of that number, otherwise it's going to mm-hmm. stumble. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't think they can, even the price guys don't want a 20, 30-point stumble now. Uh, you know, they had one last week, and they recovered quickly from it, but you don't want to go back down again. I think it's, it's, it's getting a little tenuous up here, and it's, it's really not exploding. It's more or less inching higher, if you, if you really look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we think it should be treated that way, and until it starts to stumble, we're not going to get excited. But uh, the numbers aren't far below, like, you know, 20 points below or so, or next week, uh, even 10 points below here will start to look pretty ugly on, on an intermediate basis. And then mm-hmm. the question is, can that, can that first little stumble get you down to break a leg? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, yeah. we, just, we measure it that way in layers, and uh, yeah. that's what we see. Get the dominoes, uh, get the dominoes right. to start tumbling, I guess. Yeah, it's a domino effect type thing. Yeah, it's not, not one, no one signal is holy. Uh, you know, the, the little one falls into the medium one, falls into the big one, and then finally you, you know, you're really in trouble. So that's, that's how we're treating it right now. It's just sitting back and measuring. Meanwhile, well, uh, I'm sound asleep on the other markets. Uh, GDX and gold are well, gold's like having a $10 down month. It's about where it opened the month, actually. Um, mm-hmm. 
GDX has gone sideways for 10 months. It's probably the most sedate 10 months in the history of the GDX. Uh, it's up 7.6% on the year and gone totally to sleep. And uh, it's, it's waiting on something. <clears throat> A lot of markets are waiting right now, in fact. Uh, we think that one of the biggest booms next year is going to be in the grains. We thought that this past summer it started to materialize and then, then wavered. But the pullback in grains didn't negate itself. It just sort of said, eh, it's not quite ready. And then when we run our new numbers for next year, you know, like a new three-year average and so forth, they start to measure where the grains are in relation to those, and therefore in terms of breakouts on momentum. Uh, they're just lollygagging around right now where if, if you just can hold here for about eight more weeks uh, and open next year, you're, you can be breaking out through stuff. So I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, could we stay asleep for the rest of the year mm-hmm. so that some of these massive defaulted upside breakouts, as in the grains, which is the, the part of the commodity complex that has not reared its head yet. Yeah. And that's the one that'll get attention when the food starts to go up, cattle and meats, uh, cattle and, and grains especially. And they're poised to where all they have to do is just loiter. When you get into January, which is say about nine and a half weeks from now, uh, it's boom. Uh, they can mm. explode. And I think that would shock a lot of people because this, so yeah. far they've not participated. Um, and that, that would be uh, if we saw some sort of major increase in uh, in the grains, uh, that sort of it, it works its way through the food chain, I guess, and starts well, to really. Also take that Bloomberg Commodity Index and start to run it upstairs again, too. So right. far, the, the move in commodities this past year or so has been gold and oil and copper. Um, the soft commodities, the soft food, sugar, cocoa, and coffee, Meats have been under pressure uh, and are now stabilized, and grains have just been asleep. But the, the food complex of the commodity complex looks like it's really ripe for a 2018 massive surge. And when I say massive, I mean something on the order of 30 to 40 percent rapidly, wow. um, especially well, in the grains. And that, that's, that's not, it's way beyond the 2 percent that the central banks want. So, yeah, uh, and then what are they going to yeah. do, Michael? What are they going oh, to do then? If, if all of a sudden now you still have this massive amount of debt on the books, keeps growing all the time, and now all of a sudden you've got, you know, as as a political, a politically important inflationary number coming out, not, you know, we, you and I agree that there's inflation, that money is created out of nothing and it goes into the equity markets or wherever it goes somewhere. Financial markets have been in a boom and now what happens with all this debt and they the fed is in a position where it's got to raise rates well it's not that's going to be, be pretty picture. because uh, if, if they want to follow their what they've already said is their goal if members if they can get their 2% plus inflation that they'll uh, then start to tighten up a bit uh that's going to be rather awkward because I think they're going to have a stock market that's in trouble and their bond markets so I'm looking at the T bonds in the US the German bonds and the GGBs, the Japanese government bonds, these are all traded in the futures markets, by the way, uh, look highly vulnerable to a very large collapse next year. And I say that because the, it's not because they're high and they shouldn't have been here in the first place and all that stuff. I'm talking uh, prices now. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the structure of their momentum trends that is so ominous looking. I've got mm-hmm. floors on the JGB on a momentum chart that goes back a decade and it's like, uh, you know, the bigger the floor you break, the bigger the drop. This is a chart that's one of the ugliest momentum charts I've ever seen in 30 years. And I wow. see the same uh, sort of thing in the UST bonds, which are already in a, in, in a negative mode, in my view, and in the German bonds. So what I'm seeing is 
potential for commodity price explosions, especially the food side of the equation. And then two, on the other side of that, government bonds look look very precarious. So the central banks are going to be in a very funny situation. I'm going to laugh my head off when these forces come into play, because I, what are they going to do? They're going to raise rates? Yeah, know, and, I mean, that's just you know. the point. They can't raise rates, it seems. Yeah. I mean, they can, but... Aye, aye. I yeah, mean, we've right. got it, all this it, debt. It's going to be fun. It, Justice will be served. And that, that, no. uh, I, I love it in that regard. Well, yes, and that should that should finally knock the equity markets down. And, I, you know, it's not that so. we're cheering for suffering and pain and all that, Michael, but we know that these things have run excessively beyond where they should be because of manipulation of the markets through the monetary system, right? Mm-hmm. I think you agree that's, with me on that. Yeah, it's not that I'm, I'm you know... It shouldn't have occurred in the first place. Nature will take over, put it back to some mode of reality, and and quite possibly oscillate the mean, meaning, you know, as much distortion went one way, it might distort itself the other way uh, to compensate for it. Uh, Markets are mean that way. Uh, All right, Michael, as we head into into a new year then, I I guess you're most bullish on the grains, on the soft commodities, Mm -hmm. uh, oil, and and some of those leaders now, will they sort of take a back seat? Do you think they'll be okay? I think we'll still hold the leadership position. Oil, I think, if it can get to where I think it's headed soon in the next month or so, up to 60 area, I think it could take a break uh, and maybe not be a major contributor. I think the grains have the greatest potential for percentage rapid Upside, and in we have 2018. numbers that, that I provide to our subscribers where those numbers begin, um, and I think that would be the the, the the beach ball coming out from under the water in a whoosh when you let go of it. You know what I mean? Uh, that yeah. sort of effect. Uh, so for for rapid money on the upside, I think it's the grains, and and to some extent other foods. I think gold will continue to lead commodities, um, and uh, I think it in particular will get benefited when equity holders get nervous and they start yeah. to say, you know, this is not so much fun anymore. I think I'm going to go <laughs> over there. And when yeah. they realize the gold's done almost as well as the S&P, they'll realize, you you know, how come we didn't notice that? Um, anyway, yeah, well, you talk talk about being lulled to sleep, the bondholders, the idea that the interest rates were never going to, we're never going to have any kind of runaway interest rates and or equity markets can't go down. You know, we... Well, sooner or later, those of us who have been around for a number of cycles know that's not true. So, Well, the belief that central banks control things, uh, yeah, they've controlled it longer than they normally have. But uh, recall, uh, did Ben Bernanke stop the stock market collapse of 2008? He fought nope. it all the way down, and he didn't stop it. Neither uh, did he Greenspan. went to where it wanted to go, and then finally it responded to central right. bank action. But in the decline, it said, we don't care. <laughs> so yeah. uh, Boy, the they, Fed they, is not always said that. Yeah, viciously it said that. So, yes. Michael, thank you. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being with thank us you, again. Jay. Folks, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Michael's the best there is as far as I'm concerned when it comes to, um, you know, I want to play prevent defense when I'm long in the market. I just want you to tell me, Michael, when we're going to have, you know, when it's going to be time to get out. Uh, and if it's a little early, that's fine, too. But I just don't want to lose my 80% again in a bear market in the gold shares. So if you can help me with that and our listeners, we'll be eternally grateful to you. Thank you so much, for Michael, for being with us. So, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Chen Lin. He's got some ideas in the biotech sector as well as an energy stock or two as well. So we'll be right back with Chen Lin. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times is Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again a friend of mine, um, former uh, partner of mine, Chen Lin. We still work together in many ways, less formally, but a uh, really great friend, a wonderful guy. Uh, is, uh, has a beautiful family, and uh, they're, they're very good friends of my, myself and my wife, Teresa. Chen, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Jay. Always good to have you with me. Now, I want to ask you... Just some general ideas, some general questions. Maybe before we get into that, though, let people know that if they would like to check out your letter and, and subscribe to it, it's chenpicks.com, C-H-E-N-P-I-C-K-S.com. And I uh, should also tell those of you who may not be familiar with Chen, he has a remarkable track record, uh, at least uh, one account that, I've, that I'm aware of uh, years ago. Uh, he parlayed 5400 into $2.5 million dollars in a period of 10 years, not too shabby, where you couldn't use any leverage or uh, just really just straight. A certain amount of money went in at that time, and 10 years later, it was worth $2.5 million. Chen, that's, that's remarkable, and you've continued to do well, uh, with uh, par- primarily with the biotechs. I want to ask you about uh, one or two of your top biotech picks. But before we get to a couple of your specifics, I would like to ask you just in general, where do you, what do you think of the dollar and, and, and the energy markets, the precious metals markets? Maybe you could just sort of give me give us your ideas on those three markets as we round out this year, head into 2018. 
Yes, hi, Jay. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, for the dollar, for near term, I see dollar likely strengthen because dollar has been weakened for many part of the year. And relatively, United States, you know, economy is better than Europe. And mm-hmm. the rest of the world, basically, most of the dollar index is against euro. So it's been, it came down a lot, and it seems like a pendulum looks like I want to swim the other direction. Okay. So with dollar strengthen, I'm not very bullish on commodity in the near term. It's only commodity I'm playing, and most, mostly playing is uh, like palladium really for supply demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have small gold and silver. Uh, I think they could be range bound and could be weakened as yeah. well. Uh, but mm-hmm. eventually, you know, for long term, I'm bullish uh, on the on the gold and silver for the long run. Uh, silver, I mean, the the I'm sorry, oil is uh, relatively range bound because mm-hmm. as soon as oil price hits sixty, the fracking of United States. You know, the, it's like a machine, right? Fracking mm-hmm. machine start to pump a lot mm-hmm. of oil to the market. So, uh, so I think it's a relatively uh, balanced around that, you know, 50 range. Mm-hmm. So that's itself relatively balanced. Obviously, if we have a economic a big slowdown, it can go down much lower. So, yeah. um, so I, I, I think in the near term, relatively balanced uh, range bound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you're what you're saying is uh, more or less in in sync with what Michael Oliver just said in terms of the uh, both the precious metals and um, you know and the um, and the energy markets as well. Um, but the market that you've done extremely well in over the last couple of years, at least, is the biotech sector. How do you, how does that look to you right now? Oh, I, I feel it's. Uh it's a great opportunity. Uh, it just gets started. I have, you know, an r- absolutely fantastic year uh, in biotech. Uh, as I mentioned, I was on your, you know, top pick, the top pick, you know, get on your show. Yes. May, and just look at how many has double, triple, quadruple, right? So uh, it's it's just fantastic. Uh, right now, I have some pullback. Uh, mainly the large farmer. Uh, large biotech and pharma having problem meeting their expectations. That means actually they probably will need to buy other, you know, smaller biotech to show up their pipeline. So actually, I think it's positive for biotech in the long run, for the special for small biotech and investing. So um, yeah, that has been a fantastic year in, in biotech. So I'm looking forward to uh, to even better years ahead. Well, that's uh, that's that's good to hear. The kind of reminds me a little bit of the major gold mining companies that have to go out and buy the little guys to to shore up their reserves, and uh, a little bit the same thing. In some ways, you know, Chen, the exploration stocks remind me uh, in in some ways to the biotechs. I mean, they're high risk, high return situations, aren't they? Yes, exactly. When I got into a biotech five, six, seven years ago, that one of the key reasons is very similar, strong similarity. You have an asset and you need to raise money. <laughs> so there's valuation and then there, there also the endpoint and then there's a lot of takeover in this space. Uh, so, so I was able just using the same strategy I did in um, commodities, in, in mining, in energy, the same in the biotech, looking for catalysts, looking for their money raising events, and 
looking for their obviously most important and fundamental asset. So uh, see, um, see, you know, just ride the wave. But you know, it's not just riding the wave with you though, because you you really keep on top of these companies. Uh, you you know when they're going to have to raise money. Uh, you know what the outcome of that might be. Uh, how they are going to raise money? They're going to issue shares. Are they going to? sell some assets or how are they going to raise money is so important and what's going on internally uh, within the management is something that you keep up with very very acutely and you do that and you pass that on to your subscribers uh, that that I think is most valuable but one company I want to hear what you have to say about is Sorrento Therapeutics it's a, a clinical stage antibody uh, centric biopharmaceutical company developing new therapies to turn malignant cancers into manageable and possibly curable diseases. Uh, this is one that you're really high on. I mean, it's it's been very volatile. I'm looking at a stock chart here, Chen, going back, you know, a couple of years ago or so. It was 25 bucks. It's been down around, oh, a dollar, two dollars recently. Um, it, 80 million shares. I see it at around $2.70 U.S. today gives it a Market cap around 130 million or so, 128 million. What uh, what's the story with uh, Sorrento? Could you talk about what their, let's say, what their primary core products are, and then they have some other other things, I guess, that they may spin off possibly. Uh, talk to us about Sorrento. Yeah, it has been an amazing story. I've been with this stock for almost five years and riding it up and down. I remember if 20 plus, I was in Europe. I was selling, but uh, unfortunately, I was on vacation. I didn't sell all of them. I sold some. And uh, I mean, right on the way back, it's not pleasant. And unfortunately, I sold some on the way down. Uh, as I told my subscriber, and I recently am buying it back, you know, just around $2 range. So uh, it seems right now it's start an uptrend. So its technology is quite uh, complicated. Okay, this company going through uh, a lot of different um, uh, acquisitions. So, uh, so, so they, in-house, their expertise is really is called antibody. It's like a, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's a special uh, thing right now. It's very hard if you know uh, Kite, uh, it's, which is a company, the CAR-T company, and then they were taken over for, for $12 billion, right? The, what it is, is that it put an antibody with a, the T-cell together to attack cancer cells, so it's mm-hmm. part of the attack, so the antibody will, will guide the T-cell towards the cancer. So, mm-hmm. well, Sorrento, they trying to replicate a very similar thing right here. Uh, they, instead of, uh, you know, using Kite, they have their antibody, they have their own special antibody, CD38, and they're trying to do, uh, to target, the, do the, almost the same thing, okay, by their early stage. So that, mm-hmm. that's, that's the bottom line. Uh, Kite was taken over this year for $12 billion, and Sorrento actually uh, make a, s- a small correction that right now the market cap is um, about $200 million, okay, with $80 million mm-hmm. outstanding, and uh, $2.60, so about... Uh, 200 million, so you see that that's a gap, that's the opportunity. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a few catalysts. They also used to be in the uh, pain management uh, you know, area, so they have yes. a, a drug waiting for FDA approval. Uh, if it should give decision in the first quarter of next year, right? it's, uh, it's about 700 million to a 
billion market, and then they are the second generation of that. So you can see it, it could have uh, theoretically, I mean, if just as, assuming if it's uh, get approved by the uh, FDA, uh, 100, 200 million sales, that could worth quite a few hundred million, right? Uh-huh. It would be a few times of its current market cap. So uh, that's a uh, catalyst is fixed. It's, it's doing Q1, late Q1 of next late year. Late Q1 of next year. Yeah. So that could be something that Sorrento shareholders want to pay attention to. Yes, yes. And then they also have a, 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 a few other catalysts. One of the key catalysts coming up, which market will see, is uh, its company called Cellularity. Okay, it's a, it's a cell gene. It's a big uh, biotech company, about 100 billion, okay, with a B and market cap. Mm. It's very volatile. Last week, they have a terrible week, and the share was down 20% because their pipeline issue. But anyway, they're spinning off their whole division. They think uh, uh, it's better for for that division to uh, to run on its own, right? So that division turn around and say, okay, I have the the cell technology from Celgen, right? Because Celgen famous for, and we have the best technology. We want to build uh, a next kite, and then we we need a good antibody. So they look around to look at what's the best antibody, and then they pick mm-hmm. Sorrento. <laughs> so mm-hmm. together, this is a public information, and then you can sure. see. On Sorrento's selling and Sorrento CEO's uh, uh, webcast presentation, I think in the Rodman um, presentation, they said they own 30% of Solarity. Okay, that, that company, they own 30%. But Solarity, it's a division of Celgen. When the IPO, of course, depends on the market condition. When the IPO next year, can easily worth billions of dollars, right? Billions mm-hmm. with S. It's not just one billion or two billion. And then uh-huh. the rental rental owns thirty percent. Right? In the public wow. filing, is I own twenty five percent, but with anti dilution. So basically, it's minimum from that public reading from that is the rental will own at least twenty five percent in IPO. Okay, at least. Mm. So. So, so that's the situation, and that itself could worth one billion. Of course, you know, depends on the market condition. And right now, the rental market cap is two hundred million. Yeah. Okay. You see that those are the opportunity. Two big catalysts coming in the next uh, few months. Wow. Obviously, depends on the market condition. Depends on if if uh, in the market do crash, then you know, that that yeah, <laughs> sure. bet no. will be off. But if market yeah. continue. Uh, carrying even can just continue current range for the next few months. The stock can do very very well. So that so that that's basically what I'm looking at. And they also have many other technology, but market doesn't give any valuation. So yeah, I'm, I'm don't well, want market, to waste time uh, over here just. To, the, <laughs> it seems though the market's that. ignoring a lot of these, uh, uh, most of this upside that you're talking about, the potential upside anyway, Chen. And that's, I know you're a you know you're a risk reward guy. You're looking at the risks that you. You know, you sell when you make some money on these things to re- to de-risk your position and so forth. You know, we're just we're, we're basically out of time. I never got around to asking you about Pan Orient, which is another company that you that you've been very patient with. The stock hasn't gone anywhere for quite a while. Uh, take a minute to tell us about Pan Orient and why you're hanging in there. Right, it's based on risk reward, right? So uh, this year the drilling program was inconclusive, but it seems very they have very encouraging. 
uh, results actually at the side of the structure. You have a big structure there because of the uh, it's a forest, right? It's a, it's hard to go to the center. They drew on the side. I found very interesting thing. Uh, most likely they will drill next year, and it's a very high risk reward company trading very close to cash. Plus, they have other oil-producing assets and oil selling in Canada. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's asset worth more, in my opinion, worth more than the market carrying market cap. So, you got a free carry of this uh, big, so potentially, the one of the largest discovery in the world. So. Wow. So, well, these are two ideas that Chen has, and and folks, if you're really interested in in trying to make some money along with Chen, you might want to go to ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. Sign up for a subscription to his newsletter. He uh, also is another company he wanted to talk about. We're out of time. Uh, Maya Gold and Silver. But uh, if you want to know about that, you'll have to subscribe to Chen's letter, I guess, because we are out of time. Chen, thanks so much for being with us, and we need to do this more often. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. Uh, John Rubino will be with me right after the break. He wants to talk about whether we may be facing some serious inflationary problems a la 1970s uh, or worse, also wants to talk a little bit about uh, about the cryptocurrencies and how they are merging now with some of the gold technology, with, with some of the gold companies like uh, Gold Money, for example. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, John Rubino. He's been a guest uh, numerous times in this show, not often enough, but he's here again today. Uh, he is um, he runs a popular website, dollarcollapse.com. He's been a, the author and co-author of several books, uh, one with James Turk, uh, The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops, uh, and a number of other books as well. So thanks for joining me again, John. Hey, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me. Uh, you, you still are writing for the CFA magazine, right, too? Yeah, that's kind of an insider Wall Street magazine that uh, yeah. that has a lot of really interesting um, kind of nitty-gritty stuff about the investment community, which which is really fun to research. Well, it's pretty uh, pretty technical. It's for the for the uh, for the insiders, kind of the guys on Wall Street, the people that are really making a living uh, playing with other people's money, I suppose. Yeah, it's aimed at money managers, which, which yeah. means it's nice from a journal journalistic standpoint because I don't have to define all the terms. You know, they know yeah. what everything means, so I can just throw sure. the words out there and then go on to the uh, the story itself. But you do quite a good job of defining what things mean, John, in your writings for us mere mortals as well. So thank you for that. Oh, sure. Well, that, that's the hard part about um, writing about any subject really, yeah. is that, that you've got to make it um, understandable to people who aren't experts on it, but you've still got to make it technically true, you know, and right. it's not easy to do both of those things at the same time sometimes. I understand what you're talking about, and I, you know, I mean, for example, with the mining sector that I'm familiar with, to be able to somehow explain geological terms and uh, in, in a way that lay people can understand what's going on is is a challenge, of course. So, um, yeah, it's dollarcollapse.com, folks. Go there, enjoy a lot of really great stuff, a lot of free stuff. And one of the things that I really enjoy uh, that John puts up there, I think every week, John, you have your top 10 videos. Uh, I mean, I could spend all of my time just watching your top 10 videos probably and and get nothing else done. Uh, but there's a lot of really good stuff on there, and I'm not saying that because you put my videos on there once in a while, my my interviews, and I thank you for that. But there's a lot of other things, and I just would like people to uh, to go to dollarcollapse.com. Well, you know, John, we've uh, ta- ta- we want to talk today a little bit about the threats of inflation, you know, and I'm talking about inflation. You and I, as uh, who follow the Austrian School of Economics, know that we've had inflation. We've had it in spades. It's gone, though, however, into the financial assets. It's going into the stocks and bonds. I mean, it, people don't think of that as inflation, but it is, right? Well, yeah, the, the definition of inflation in the Austrian School of Economics is an um, increase in the supply of money and credit. Mm-hmm. And we've definitely seen that, but you, you don't see it go evenly into all the prices out there. In other words, um, something will become a bubble and something else will go down, but you're still having inflation because you've created so much money that it's mm-hmm. going somewhere and it's distorting the economy. And what we've done over the last 30 or 40 years is create absolutely insane amounts of money and credit, but... The average person in their day-to-day life doesn't necessarily see the effects of it because, you know, you go to the grocery store and the price of food is up somewhat, but not insanely. And Mm -hmm. you buy a car and the price doesn't seem that much higher than it was the last time you bought a car. Uh, But if you look at financial assets, they are absolutely soaring at record levels, no matter how you measure them, stocks and bonds. Um, House prices are back to levels last seen in the 2006-2007 housing bubble. Wow. And I just 
posted an article about uh, some other places where we're seeing some uh, really hyperinflation now. You know, Einstein, um, back in the 1920s, was in a restaurant, didn't have money for a tip, so he wrote a little note on a piece of paper and handed it to the waiter. Uh, that was projected to go at auction just lately for eight thousand dollars. <laughs> it, it sold for over a million dollars. Yeah, Paul Newman's Rolex watch just sold for seventeen million dollars, and it is an ugly watch. Day I saw a picture of it. You know, it's not something you would necessarily wear for aesthetic reasons. But some rich guy with way more money than he knows what to do with decided to pay seventeen million for it. Um, a, a British company just added blockchain to its name and its shares rose by 400%. And then yeah. of course, cryptocurrencies, you know, these things came out of nowhere and are now worth a couple of hundred billion dollars in the aggregate and with a bullet, you know, they're still soaring. So these are signs that all this credit that we've created um, is having an impact. It's distorting prices in different sectors of the economy. And usually, or, or right now, it's distorting prices in um, assets that rich people buy because we're, we're creating this credit. We're handing it directly to the 1%. That's how it's working now. Yeah. And so those guys have to do something with the money and they've already got everything. <laughs> so they're buying frivolous stuff or um, edgy stuff like cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And well, they, they, don't, they, they don't know what to do with their money. They've got some more than they know what to do with. And they don't know the people that could really use it. I mean, some people do. There's some, uh, you know, some people are, are looking around and trying to, some, some really rich people are trying to find things they can do to help their, their fellow man. But for the most part, yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? It really distorts the, the economy. And I would gather, also believe that it, that it adds to a lot of the um, political discontent and unhappiness. Oh, yeah. Well, people see a tiny handful of, of other people getting rich while their lives get harder and harder. And that explains politics right there. <laughs> All the, the yeah. crazy elections that we've been having and the uh, secession movements in different countries. Um, yeah. People don't feel like the system's working for them anymore. But, yeah, you know, there, that's for sure. yeah. there, there's also kind of a moral component to credit bubbles that is illustrated by these insane prices being paid by rich people for basically frivolous things. And and. You know, when, when you think about if you have $20 million lying around, right, and, and you think, well, I could buy Paul Newman's watch or I could lift 100 poor kids out of poverty and give them really good lives. Yeah. And, and you choose Paul Newman's watch. What does that say about what the world has done to you morally? You know, and, and we're, we're seeing a lot of that out there, too. And that's part of the frustration. If rich people were getting richer, but doing demonstrably good things with that money, then the 99% wouldn't be as frustrated and angry as it is. But instead, we're seeing this ridiculous, silly stuff happening out there where you know, London penthouses hit all-time record prices and um, luxury homes uh, just can't stay on the market. They're snapped up in an instant as soon as they come out because, because there are so many rich people with, uh, with more money than sense buying these things that they don't need while the rest of us struggle to get by because our incomes aren't keeping up with health care costs and college tuition and um, th things that are the necessities of life for us and that are becoming harder and harder to pay for. And that's not 
Um, that's not a surprise and it's not an unexpected consequence. That's what always happens when you create too much money and credit. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you build inequality into a system that uh, didn't necessarily have that much of it before. You know, if you look at the U.S. in the 1950s, um, the typical corporate CEO made more than his workers, but not astoundingly more. But today, the average CEO makes hundreds and hundreds of times more than the average worker in the company. And, yeah. and, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that uh, leads to French Revolution-type politics. Yeah, and it sure does. We're seeing a lot of that start to bubble up here. Yet, in addition to that, John, I, I hear what you're saying. The, re- the the massive amount of money that goes to very few people, but of course that is made possible because of this excessive amount of money that's created. If we had a monetary system that was, um, let's say, uh, equal weights and measures, such that the currency stayed kept its value all the time, as it did pretty much up until Nixon really blew the lid off and took us off the gold standard. We had uh, stable prices. You didn't have the ability, you didn't have this massive amount of money in the hands of the few to redistribute things in their direction. And and not to mention that, I mean, it's just the malinvestment, the idea of these people are getting rich, but they're getting rich for doing what? And so you happen to own a Paul Newman's watch and all of a sudden you become extremely rich or you happen to have this scribble paper from Einstein and you become very wealthy. Anyway, John, I want to, you, you mentioned um, cryptocurrencies. I want to talk to you about that a little bit, but uh, if we have time here, but I, but I wanted to ask you a little bit now in terms of where this money goes and uh, you know, it's created by out of thin air by the federal reserve. Uh, Alistair McLeod has talked on this show about how, this money is created, and, and the equity markets tend to do best when the economy is really at the bottom, in the pits. That's when you start to really see the equity markets gaining dramatically. And then he notes that as the economy starts to gain uh, over a period of time uh, and earnings start to rise, you start to see the equity markets can start to flounder. Now, we're seeing a stronger economy now. You talked to me about that. I think you'd agree uh, or I believe it's your view that we're seeing a much stronger economy now than we had a couple of years ago, right? Oh, yeah. Well, in terms of top line numbers, in other words, employment and GDP growth, we're, we're looking pretty good right now. But that's the way it always looks at a cyclical peak. Mm-hmm. Um, so much credit is created that, you know, as many people can be hired are hired and, and uh, companies just finally decided to start building some factories, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people start to um, to lose their the cautious nature that they've had throughout most of the cycle, and um, and they start spending. Well, that's frequently a sign that we're at the peak because you had to create so much credit to convince people that good times are going to roll forever uh, that you start hitting limits in terms of how much you can create. For instance, stock prices are at cyclical peak valuation levels now. In other words, every time they've been this expensive, the market has crashed. Housing prices, same thing. When housing prices have reached similar levels in the past, um, the housing sector has crashed. Uh, When unemployment has reached the current level, the labor market gets tight, inflation starts to pick up, or wage inflation starts to pick up, and the central banks of the world have to tighten, and that causes a recession. You know, we're at the place where, in the past, all of these things have begun to happen. And we're seeing that, uh, at least in the U.S., the um, the Federal Reserve is starting to tighten just a little bit. The, the Fed's balance sheet is shrinking now. 
uh, the European Central Bank is starting to talk about tapering its bond purchases. In other words, to stop dumping so much new money into the system. So when that happens in a coordinated way, when three or four central banks are in the same position of tightening, you know, shrinking their balance sheets, pulling money out of the system, that's when this, the, the economy will really roll over. And we're not far from that point right now. So we could see it happen through a stock market crash based on valuations. You know, when stocks mm-hmm. get just too expensive and they collapse, that could tip it over. Or um, one or two central banks begin to tighten in a meaningful way, that could tip th- things over. Or mm-hmm. any number of other things could happen to stop this um, the current expansion um, that, that affects people's confidence. You know, there could be a war, there could be a natural disaster. There's always something when valuations reach this level that stops the party. And uh, I, I don't think today will be any different. No. Well, uh, yeah, it seems uh, it seems though equity markets will never go down again. And I suppose a lot of people are sort of coming to believe that. One of the interesting things that Alistair pointed out, uh, sort of the dynamics that underlie why banks start to lend at certain points in the cycle. He mentioned when rates start to go up, and especially now that the banks have held so many treasuries, when rates start to go up, then they start to have losing positions in those treasuries. So the tendency is to sell them, uh, raise the cash, and go out and start making loans, and the money finds its way into the real economy, and then you start to have an inflationary impact. That is inflationary in terms of what the government measures in terms of our living costs and so forth, to the extent they do that uh, fairly. I, you know, I think you and I both believe that it's not a very good measure of what really the cost of living is these days. But do you, do you see that dynamic playing out now that that in fact, you know, with rates rising, these banks are holding are holding treasuries, not not a very good thing to own when rates start to rise. Well, um, yeah, you know, you can you can look at the uh, stats on business borrowing, which is at record levels, which means somebody's lending them money, right? And consumer debt is rising dramatically. You know, the savings rate in the U.S. is back down to uh, um, previous lows of the last mm-hmm. cycle. Which means that we're borrowing money in order to buy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and somebody's lending them that money. So presumably it's banks, credit card companies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, which means that they've made the decision to lend money. So that fits with the dynamic that you're talking about there. And yeah. again, that's a cyclical peak phenomenon. That's the kind of thing that happens when when people just see the economy growing year after year and stocks going up year after year and they they don't buy and they don't borrow and finally at the end they can't stand it anymore and they start um, borrowing money and spending it and and borrowing against their stocks to buy more stocks and and you get that final blow off that's what this feels like you know 1999 it happened 2006 it happened and so just chronologically we're due for it (laughs) and it does feel like it's happening again you wonder, uh, you know, to what extent the Fed is able to control these things, uh, rates and so forth. And certainly, you know, looking at we're going, uh, Donald Trump has a chance, uh, will have the opportunity to appoint a new Federal Reserve chairman coming up very soon. Uh, most people believe that Trump prefers a weaker dollar, uh, probably a, a promiscuous Federal Reserve chairman. And I guess those are probably pretty easy to find for the most part. But what what are your thoughts on this? Well, do you, who do you have you heard any names that Trump may be looking to put in there as the um, as the Fed chairman? And if so, what might we expect? Well, there are lots of names being tossed around, and they're pretty much standard business as usual people. 
you know, he's he's sticking with mainstream economists who sure. already have a relationship to the Fed. Uh, but I think the important thing to understand is that whoever inherits the Fed um, is inheriting a broken system. Yeah. And won't be able to do anything to fix it because it's beyond repair. You know, we've taken on just way too much debt. And that debt has to be worked off somehow. And and you can't get out of an excessive amount of debt painlessly. You just have you have to get rid of it through inflating it away or collapsing under under the weight of it and having some kind of a depression. And that's where we are now. So whoever inherits the Fed is going to inherit the coming recession, which we're overdue for, as we talked about. And at that point, they're going to be out of weapons because interest rates are already too low. Insane amounts of money have already been created. Uh, So what they're going to have to do is double down, probably. They're going to have to ramp up the asset purchasing and just basically buy every bond in sight and probably equities too. And they're going to have to push interest rates down to negative territory this time, like a lot of other countries have already had to do. Uh, And, you know, it's hard to imagine that getting us back to normal growth again, you know, because that's such an extreme set of policies that it's more likely that it finally has the effect on currency values that a lot of people in the sound money community have been expecting for so long. Mm -hmm. Fed can control interest rates, but not necessarily the value of the currency. Mm -hmm. So we'll see some kind of a currency crisis flow from the next set of things that the Fed does. And whoever's in charge, they're going to have to do pretty much the same thing. All right, John, with just a few minutes left, uh, I I mean, we could see... uh, I mean, if we have a stock market crash, another another financial crisis like we had 2008, 2009, the dollar got stronger, right? So, but we could see ultimately, as you're saying, they're going to have to double down and print massive amounts of money probably to try to keep, uh, to keep the patient alive, to keep the heart beating that, uh, that it ultimately will, will destroy the currency. Indeed, it has the dollar. I mean, gold got up to $1,900. Uh, the last time, so we could be looking at something again. I suppose a new high for gold, no doubt. And I mean, not that gold is gra- gaining value, but the dollar is just collapsing. Well, yeah, yeah. If we see a, a replay of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, but on a bigger scale, um, at first gold plunged and the dollar went up because the dollar was seen as the global safe haven asset. Everybody right. was buying it because they were terrified. Uh, and then we uh, then we cut interest rates and created a lot of new dollars and uh, generated huge amounts of new credit out there. And then the dollar started to trend back down. Um, this time around, probably the, uh, the response of the Fed is going to be so extreme that it risks a, a serious run on the dollar. Uh, the question, though, be- becomes where do we go if the major fiat currencies of the world are seen as no longer viable? You know, will mm-hmm. we will we jump into cryptocurrencies or will it be gold and silver or will it be some other kind of real asset? I suspect it'll be all of the above. You know, we'll just get out of fiat currencies at the point that, um, you know, interest rates are, are extremely negative and governments are buying equities hand over fist. Uh, we won't want to hold the currency that is the... Um, the tool for achieving those policy goals. Um, so if cryptocurrencies are still seen as as valid stores of value that will buy those, and gold and silver always 
do well in that kind of a scenario, so we'll buy those. And and uh, I, I think the, the gold bugs' dreams will finally come true, but it won't be a fun world when that no, happens. No, it won't be a fun you know, world. Shouldn't, shouldn't think of it as a good thing. John, we're almost out of time here. I just I want to ask you about this linkage that we're seeing now between gold and the cryptocurrencies. Uh, with about a minute left, gold money is announcing that they are now starting to, uh, to hook up with some of these cryptocurrencies. Do you see that as a possibility that the cryptocurrencies are a, a transportation system for real wealth? Well, I, I think the most interesting scenario for next generation money when fiat currencies fail is gold and silver as the um, the risk-free asset stored in a vault somewhere, so it's super safe, and then some version of a cryptocurrency as your transaction mechanism. So mm-hmm. it, it could be, um, you know, Bitcoin linked to gold, or it could be some completely new cryptocurrency that comes along as the transaction mechanism. Who knows, you know, how that's going to play out. But I think gold and silver will end up being the bedrock asset in the system that we put in place of today's system. All right, John, we'll have to leave it go at that. I agree with you. I think that's certainly the way I'm looking at it. Uh, history, if history is a guide, gold and silver retains its value. It remains money forever, no matter what the com- what the uh, politicians want. That's all the time we have. Thanks, John, for being with us. Next week, uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff will be with us to talk about why America is in worse financial shape than Russia and China and what that may mean for your future, your financial future. And hopefully Michael Oliver will be with us as well. Bye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.